When you bring your child home for the first time, you want a baby monitor you can trust. When you choose Stork, you choose technology trusted to monitor 10 million babies in hospitals every year. Stork continuously tracks your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and temperature. Visit MassimoStork.com to learn more. Stork, a revolutionary baby monitor, is born. Stork is not a medical device. Read and understand all product labeling. Massimo data on file. I thought we were the biggest pieces of junk for the longest time because we don't do a family dinner. But the truth is, it's like my kids need to eat at like 545 and my husband doesn't get home till 645 and they go to bed at 730. And the other part of it is recognizing that like just because I'm doing something now doesn't mean I'm going to do it forever. Like my kids are three and four. I don't want to eat dinner with them. It's work. I am on the clock during their meal times. Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You? A podcast about feeding kids. Hi, I'm Stacy, And I'm Megan. This week, we're bringing you the first How We Feed of 2023. And we're very excited to be talking with author and therapist Casey Davis about feeding a family as a parent with ADHD. But before we chat with Casey, a quick reminder, we're currently running a listener survey. You guys, we had some technical challenges including maybe sending you to the wrong URL the first time we mentioned it. So please, please, please visit didn'tdigestfeedyou.com backslash listener dash survey to give us some feedback. We really, really want to hear from you, especially if you want us to either improve something or there are topics that you're really hoping we'll tackle. This is the perfect place for us to get all of that feedback. We've also shared a link to the survey in our free listeners community. Oh my God, if you want to give us feedback about not sending out the wrong survey. Speaking of our listeners community, we would love to have you join us there. If you haven't yet, visit Didn't I Just Feed You backslash community to sign up for our free message boards or join as a supporting member for our recipe archive access or to get those two extra episodes every month. And you guys, now you can get those extra episodes on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you just don't want to join the community. Yeah. So we just want to be really clear. If you subscribe via Apple podcasts, you get those little like episodes that say subscriber next to them. Those are the same exact bonus episodes that we publish as part of our two different community memberships that include bonus episodes. So it's no different. It's just a matter of whether you want to be part of our community and be on that message board and interact with us. Can you tell? I'm trying to make it sound really great. (laughs) Or you just want to be all biz, log into Apple Podcasts, get the main feed episodes, and get those bonus episodes. So those are both options, no different. Okay, housekeeping out of the way. And I'm going to have a really hard time, Megan, not like jumping right into this episode. I'm so excited about it. Tell people about Casey Davis. I've discovered her on TikTok. Okay, which is funny. I discovered her on Instagram. Oh, (laughs) Oh, the lady was on the TikTok. Oh, my God. I can't. We can't. This is not a can of worms. We can open up. up. Tonight, okay? Uh, tonight, today, we can't we can't go there. I did. Speaking of me being the elder millennial here, uh, listen to Casey's book too, which I highly recommend. Yeah. It was great to Amazing. to listen as an audiobook. Casey Davis is the best selling author of How to Keep House While Drowning. 
a licensed therapist. She is the creator of the popular Struggle Care website and Instagram and the Domestic Blisters TikTok, where she shares her revolutionary approach to self and home care for those dealing with mental health issues, physical illness, and hard seasons of life. Across platforms, Casey has more than 1.5 million followers. Like she's a big deal. She recently launched the podcast Struggle Care, which is available on every podcast platform. Casey lives in Houston with her husband and two daughters. Welcome to the show, Casey. Casey, for our listeners who don't know you and don't know the wonderful resource that is Struggle Care and your book, can you give us just like a top line overview of your ADHD diagnosis and also maybe how it aligns with your parenting journey, like how many kids you have? Did you discover you had ADHD after they were born or before and how that impacts your parenting? Absolutely. So I have two kids. They are three and four. They're two years apart, but for three weeks out of the year, they are quote unquote one year apart. And I actually didn't realize that I had ADHD until I had had children and and having kids elevated like my ADHD symptoms to such a degree that it was one of the first times that I was like, wait, what is going on? And it's kind of a funny story about how I realized it because I had started a TikTok channel. I talk a lot about care tasks and mental health and all these sort of things. And a lot of my like house hacks and things like that, I was always talking about like, you know, this just like doesn't work for my brain. Here's what does work for my brain. And so much of my audience are neurodivergent, a lot of people with ADHD. And they would say like, well, don't you have ADHD too? And I'd be like, no, I don't. And they'd be like, uh, <laughs> maybe you, you do. may want to get that checked out. Right. And I remember one time someone saying like, I know it's so inappropriate to like tell someone mm-hmm. on the internet, like what their diagnosis is. And I'm not trying to do that, but like, Casey, like, I really think you should get assessed. Like everything you talk about, like you describe my brain entirely. So that's when I finally called up. I was already seeing a psychiatrist for postpartum depression. And I said, no, let's talk about ADHD. She's like, well, what makes you think that you might have it? And I I talked for maybe 10 minutes and she was like, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it was just really immediately apparent to her. And it's been, I don't want to say like life-changing, but it, it, it's like someone finally like connected all of the dots from all of these, what I thought were totally not connected experiences and situations and struggles and triumphs going back to when I was a small child. And it's been helpful because it does inform my parenting a lot and it does inform the way I run my house and the amount of grace I give myself and the amount of creativity that I sort of put towards trying to figure out how to make things work for me and, and feeling like that's really valid. That sounds like a very emotional process. And I might be projecting a little bit of something that's been happening in my house over the last few years. My husband was also diagnosed with ADHD as a grown-up, but he felt really, really excited and happy and so much good came out of the diagnosis. But there was this period that was a really hard emotional moment where he was feeling kind of sad for undiagnosed Michael going back many years. And he talks about this openly, which is why I'm sharing this. Did you have that moment? I mean, there was like, there was a lot of hard that came with his diagnosis too. Like there's so much looking back 
where he feels like a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression has come out of like thinking something was wrong with him, but not knowing what for so many years, like running certain patterns of self-talk that it was really like that part for him was really sad. And then, you know, it sort of all came together because then he got tools and it was like helpful and helpful in those relationships. But did you have a similar journey or was it just all like, aha, and this is so helpful and great? No, I would say I definitely had a similar moment. And my moment for me was like, you know, I I had already gotten to a place of a lot of self-acceptance and self-compassion and sort of like, you know what, my brain is what it is, and like and without thinking that it had a label. And but so my moment of sadness was like, damn, I had to work so hard to get to this place of self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't think it would have been as hard had I had this information about myself earlier. And looking back, my my frustration or whatever, like it wasn't about my parents. It was it, I went to drug rehab when I was 16. And there were a lot of behaviors that we sort of focused on as being problematic and self-absorbed and entitled mm. and all of these like really moral um, labels that when now when I look back and it was things like interrupting people all the time, correcting people being commandeering in conversations, like not remembering things. And it's like all just ADHD. And it does make me really sad for like 16 year old KC that somebody couldn't have just recognized that those behaviors were from my ADHD and approached it still, I mean, still giving me the feedback of like, hey, this is like how people experience those things. And like, you may want to like adjust accordingly so that you can have like better relationships without like demonizing me as someone who is just like, so selfish and self-absorbed because that wasn't the case. I mean, any more than any other 16 year old. (laughs) Yeah. So there was really that moment. And then of course, it like you said, it's kind of quickly eclipsed by like, Thank God I know now. Yeah. I listened to your book, How to Keep House While Drowning. And the thing that brought tears to me often in listening was you're repeatedly saying this thing has no moral Mm -hmm. value, whether it's Mm -hmm. like house cleaning or meal planning or like whatever it is. And so it's very interesting to hear how your ADHD diagnosis was linked to your journey like with addiction and how like as a society we don't accept addiction as a mental health thing which this hits home for both Stacy and I we both have addiction in our family but like the ADHD lens is socially acceptable I, that's there's no follow up question to that it's just like very like resonant with me that you struggled with addiction and ADHD and the the two were never separate or the, the lineage between the two was not connected as well as it could have been for you. And that we're so quick to overlay these values about what it means. How are you? How do you show that you're a good person? You're a good person when you don't interrupt, when you keep a clean house, when you, you know, it's it's linked to all these values as opposed to us just understanding each other and how we work. Yeah. And there was one of the things that my psychiatrist had said is that there's a huge overlap between people that are undiagnosed ADHD and people that experience addiction. And some of it is a Mm self-medicating thing. Some of it is a, you know, just unchecked symptomology. And some of it is probably, you know, the wiring and the way that our brain 
um, regulates dopamine and pleasure seeking and all of those sort of things. And, and, you know, we've thought for a while as a psychological community that, you know, because it seems cut and dry, like people who do addictive drugs become addicted, but that's not actually true. I mean, there are a lot of people that do a lot of drugs that don't become addicted. And there are a lot of people that do a little bit of drugs and all of a sudden have a lifetime of addiction. So we have for a while sort of supposed that there is a difference between the brain of someone who becomes addicted and the brain of someone who doesn't. Um, And I'm not talking about like a physical dependence, but like a true psychological disorder of addiction. And we think it probably has something to do with that pleasure center of the brain and the regulation of dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin and all of those hormones. And so it's interesting that, you know, we know ADHD affects that system of the brain. And we know so many people with ADHD also have substance abuse disorders. Um, So there's kind of, there's something there to it. Totally. Your kids... Do you consider, I mean, they're little, so we, you know, we don't know. They're still very much developing, but. No, no, we know. Oh, we know. Okay. (laughs) Tell us, tell us. Do you, are you comfortable sharing with us whether they, you identify them as neurotypical or neurodiverse? Yeah. um, One of my kids has an autism diagnosis, so she is definitely neurodiverse Mm -hmm. or neurodivergent. Um, I think probably my other child is, she's not autistic, but um, you know, I I am certainly not neurotypical. My husband is not neurotypical. He doesn't have a diagnosis either, but my husband is one of those people that, um, let's just say that sometimes I come home and find differential equations on napkins. <laughs> like he, it's like Mensa level intelligence. Yeah. Um, and he has some other kind of interesting little very endearing quirks. Mm-hmm. And I mean, his brain just doesn't work like everybody else's. And, uh, you know, so he, and neither does mine. So I think he and I put together like the idea that we were going to produce neurotypical children is probably laughable. Um, I mean, I think they're great. And I just, I clocked it really early. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason why I clocked my youngest really early, like around 15 months, is because I had exposure to so many autistic adults. Mm-hmm. And I listened to them and I began to understand how they think and how they see the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, you know, they're not all exactly the same, but it was through listening to autistic people talk about how they saw the world, how they thought about things that I recognized. It looks to me like my daughter is thinking of the world in that way, because at 15 months, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but like if you Google like symptoms of autism in young children, you're going to get a pretty stereotypical list. And I'm not saying stereotypical is bad, but you're going to get a pretty like hand flapping, going in mm-hmm. circles, spinning wheels, doing those sort of things. And my daughter really wasn't doing any of that. So it's kind of like, uh. now she did end up doing that later when she got closer to like two, two and a half. But before she was even doing any of that, there were, it was just... It's like you're, I don't know, like my spidey senses were tingling. There were a few milestones that we missed, um, but there's this intense concentration in, in the way that she played and the way that she could play independently. And there were some things that were almost like counter indicative, like she made eye contact, she laughed, she loved to be held. But I could tell that she was thinking about things differently than I had seen other children think about things. And, and it, sometimes it'd be as simple as like she would have a a piece of like toilet paper 
and she'd be holding it and it'd be kind of like rolled up into a little string and she'd be looking at like the a chair leg and she would wrap it around the chair leg and just stare at it for a minute and she'd take it off then she would do it again mm-hmm. and then she would take it off and then like a couple days later she'd be holding a piece of string and she'd be um, looking at a toilet paper tube and she would wrap it around there and kind of stop for a second. And she was always trying to figure out how things related to each mm-hmm. other. And and so I just, I'm so grateful to the autistic adults that ex- shared their experience because I, I never would have realized had I just relied on the lists that like big organizations produce. It really was about understanding kind of the thinking and the mind and the experience. So do you think knowing your husband pre having kids and also like your work as a therapist and being exposed to so many different people and different diagnoses, do you think that made that like awareness of your daughter easier? And did that help shape how you feed both of your daughters as little littles? Definitely. I, I Especially because like when I was pregnant, I was like hyper fixating on all of the parenting blogs. And I was really on like, man, we are going to breastfeed and we are going to breastfeed extended. And then we're going to do baby led weaning and we're going to do sit down dinners. And we're going to do like, I had all of the ideals in my mm. head. Right. And then I actually became a parent and I was like, oh God. Mm-hmm breastfeeding did not work out you know she had all sorts of like she had a lot of indigestion as a kid um and then you know we went to baby led weaning and it's like okay there's a lot of work like it's so much easier with the first one to do all of the like i'm gonna (laughs) pre-prep homemade you know pear yep. sticks and it's like and all of a sudden i had a second one and i'm like oh my god someone just shoved some applesauce applesauce pouch her way i can't take yeah. it anymore um and so early on i kind of found myself like quote unquote breaking all the rules and being like oh goodness um and i'm so grateful for some of the things that i knew going in of like i really wanted them to have a healthy relationship to food so i didn't want them to clear their plate i didn't want to force them to take bites i didn't want to do any yes. of those things And I also, I think being someone who is neurodivergent, I have the palate of a toddler. I cannot express to you enough, like, and it has been this like low key, key, like shameful thing for me um, for a long time that like I eat meat, cheese and bread. Mm -hmm. I don't like vegetables. And it wasn't like, I just don't prefer them. But like, if you gave me a bean burrito, because this has happened to me and like, one piece of shredded lettuce fell into it, like I would taste it. Mm-hmm. And people thought I was nuts because I don't eat salads. And they'd say, oh, but you'll like my salad. <laughs> and I'll be like, no, I really won't because I don't like the taste of lettuce. Like there's nothing you could put on it. And everybody would argue with me with like, lettuce doesn't have a taste. And I'm like, but it does. And it's strong and I hate it. So like, I've always been very particular about food. And I always looked at my limited palate as something to kind of be embarrassed about. Like, why can't you just grow up, Casey? Um, like you really, you're going to eat chicken fingers at this like nice restaurant. And it wasn't until I got my ADHD diagnosis and started learning that it's really common for people with yes. ADHD to be very picky eaters. And so I feel like that really informed how I approach my kids. Like if my kids don't want to try something, I don't make them, especially because like 
that whole thing of like, well, if you don't try it, how will you know if you like it? And I'm like, I don't know, Suzanne. I see lots of foods I know I don't like before I try them. <laughs> yes. Don't you? Like, you can look at something and be like, I am not going to like that. Also, yes. who cares? There is, again, I think it goes back to this morality thing of like, okay, so maybe there's a food out there that you never tried that you would like if you tried it 10 times. But like, if that brings you stress, what like what's the point what's the value in it why does being someone with an expanded palate why is that so important to other people that they would try to impose that on you especially in this day and age when like there are so many ways to get the nutrients that you need mm -hmm. without having to eat foods you dislike and i ended up seeing a dietitian that was both a mental health counselor and a dietitian because i've never had an eating disorder but i've certainly engaged in disordered eating and as an adult had to unpack my own like internalized diet culture yes. and fat phobia. And so then approaching feeding my kids and doing things like we try not to have like desserts and treats. Like if we're going to give them some chocolate, like it goes on the dinner plate. Mm -hmm. And obviously like my kids can eat the chocolate first. And then like having to manage my own anxiety around like, what if all they ever want is that. Um, but it's been so cool because like, so I took, my kids asked for pancakes for dinner the other day. So I took them to IHOP and we're looking through the like menu and my youngest daughter, who was two at the time, literally points to a picture of green beans and like indicates this is what I want. And so, I mean, I still got her her like happy face pancake and I ordered her the green beans and I'm thinking that like, she's not going to touch these and she did, she ate mm -hmm. them. And so I'm like seeing the fruits of like, no, my kids really do put down half a donut because they know they're full. And and so that's been really cool. But but going through that period of like, okay, my kids don't, especially one of them has like a really limited mm -hmm. palate. It's really stressful as a parent to feel like you can't like feed the same thing two days yes. in a row. I don't know where that pressure comes from. And when it's like, okay, there's like three main things they really like to eat. But I feel like I have to have this like cafeteria level diversity yeah. in what we're giving them. So a lot of it's just been like getting over that. Like yes. I eat the same thing every day for the most part, for, or at least for like several days. And then I like switch to a new thing. So like being okay with like, yeah, man, we're going to have like macaroni and cheese probably three days in yeah. a row. I mean, yes. like there's three meals in a day. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot. It's a lot <laughs> it's with a lot. that many different meals. I mean, it's interesting yeah. too, and I'm appreciating your perspective and it's making me realize that the thing we need to do is just like stop and be okay with what we need and with what our kids need and then kind of just triangulate what makes sense with our time and our capacity. I happen to be someone who prefers to eat something different every day. My husband, the one with ADHD, could eat the same thing. If he likes it, he could eat the same thing many meals in a row. So, you know, for us, it's been same thing with restaurants. Like when we used to go out to eat more, he would, you know, he's like, that place is great. We're on vacation. Let's go there again tonight. And I'd be like, what? Like, we can't go there again tonight. I don't want that. So just hearing both of us and not putting any judgment on both of us and then figuring out what makes sense. So when I have the time and energy, I experiment, but then I know that maybe, you know, Megan and I were just talking about it. She made enchiladas for her daughter one day and then she was like, oh great, she liked them. Let me make enchiladas again. But she kind of tweaked the recipe because that's fun for us to do as recipe developers. And her daughter was like, yeah, no thanks. I'll just have hard pass, yeah, hard pass on that, right? <laughs> so, yeah. but then being okay with that. Okay, so she can eat cereal tonight. I did this for me. 
because I wanted to do this. And then when I don't have the energy being like, oh yeah, it's not my favorite, but I can deal and I don't want to put time and energy into cooking. So I'll just cook the same thing for them again. Ramen again. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. And I take a lot of shortcuts. Like speaking of like time and energy constraints, like I learned for me, especially because I take ADHD medication and I'm on Wellbutrin currently. It's like both of those sometimes make it hard to have an appetite for the first half of the day. And what I learned is that I have to have available to me and I work from home. So it's not like you can like run through something right outside your work. I have to have like pre-packaged foods on hand to ensure that I eat. I had to kind of get over the guilt of that yeah. and like the plastic and and all of that kind of stuff and just look for other places in my life where I could be more environmentally conscious that I could make like easy swaps in other areas of my life. Because the truth is, if I don't have something I can grab and eat immediately, I'm not going to eat. Um, and then I'm going to have effects later in the day. Yeah. And so like I, I, when I go grocery shopping, like I always buy the pre-cooked, pre-shredded chicken. That's just what I do when I, I always buy the pre-chopped onions, like, because making it so that I can make a dinner very quickly is like imperative for my family. And for me, especially because I'm someone who gets really overwhelmed with a messy kitchen. And so like the least amount of things that I can do. And, you know, we were talking about recipes earlier, but I wish that there were more recipes that acknowledge those kind of substitutions. Like I don't need you to tell me how to like cook the chicken. I'm not cooking the chicken. Right. And And I just, I just, I have made things a lot easier for myself and I had to just get over the guilt of that. I'll tell you what other thing is like family dinners. Yeah. Um, Like it, how you eat dinner and where you eat dinner is morally neutral because I thought we were the biggest pieces of junk for the longest time because we don't do a family dinner. But the truth is, it's like my kids need to eat at like 545 and my husband doesn't get home till 645 and they go to bed at 730. And the other part of it is recognizing that like, just because I'm doing something now doesn't mean I'm going to do it forever. Like my kids are three and four. Like I don't want to eat dinner with them. It's work. (laughs) I'm on the clock (laughs) during their meal times. I want to have, and they're eating cheese and crackers. Like I want to sit down and eat a warm meal with another adult. And so like we have always, since they were born almost, I feed them Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, the majority of the things my kids eat are not cooked. They basically eat charcuterie boards every day <laughs> of, of my design. Lucky. Yes. Lucky. Uh, maybe maybe I'll air fry a mm-hmm. nugget or make mac and cheese, but I'm not cooking. So it's that for them at like 545. And then I will cook a meal for me and my husband to eat at 830 after they're in bed. And I'm okay with that. There will be another season of life where we can sit down and actually we recently started doing like a family breakfast on yes. Saturday mornings. And I was like, this is so cool. Like we're getting in that like one time a week sitting down over a meal. But the truth is, is like quality time over a meal is not like inherently more superior than quality time over a board game. Totally. Right. Sometimes it's shorter Sometimes too. Like it's who- also miserable. I think it has, yeah. I think it can be counterproductive too sometimes especially with neurodivergent children who like, I know one of my kids is going to eat three bites, get up, run around, come back, eat three bites, get up, run around, you know, and the other one is going to need, you know, 19 refills of milk. And it's like, okay. And, and you're someone who's 
has context to help you keep calm and know that this is okay. A lot of parents, that's happening. That's stressful enough. And then they're arguing with the kids. Come sit down, come sit down. Or like, I'm not going to give you more milk until you take another bite of your broccoli. And like, now you're getting into the power. Yeah. Like I was going to say dangerous territory, but I don't mean to judge it that way because I know everybody is just doing their best. I've done that myself. I was operating on the information that was out there and what I thought was right, because that's what we've been told over and over and over, which is why these episodes are so important to us, because we're trying to put out a different perspective, you know, give people permission to have a wider purview on what it's like to feed your family. But, you know, fighting with your kids about food is, you know, one of the fastest ways to make food something that's very complicated in their own emotional and personal life, which is like not what we're going Mm -hmm. for. Megan and I say all the time, what we want is our kids to have a healthy relationship with food, not eat kale. That's not the point. Yeah. Before we hear more from Casey, let's take a quick break. Twenty twenty four is the year we're focused on finally reducing dinner time overwhelm at Didn't I Just Feed You? And that means making grocery shopping easier and more cost effective, especially when it comes to the foods we all tend to spend the most on, like meat. Enter Butcherbox, where you can count on incredible deals on premium cuts. At Butcherbox, you can choose a curated box or customize your order of one hundred percent grass fed beef, free range organic chicken, pork raised crate free, and wild caught seafood to stock your fridge with all the proteins you need for the week, month, or even the year at prices that are hard to come by at the grocery store. That's all your protein shopped for in one shot at great prices delivered to your door with free shipping. Just one change, switching over to ButcherBox, and you guarantee yourself fewer trips to the grocery store and savings that are hard to find at the supermarket. Dinnertime overwhelm be gone. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y and use the code D-I-J-F-Y, short for Didn't I Just Feed You, to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share HomeThreads, the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space. At HomeThreads.com, discover furniture that can handle the chaos of family life. From wipeable dining chairs to kitchen tables and light fixtures. Or you can just freshen up your kitchen with trays, counter lamps, decor, and other affordable accents that will help you update your kitchen into a room you love spending time in. Head over to HomeThreads.com slash D-I-J-F-Y, short for Dinner and I Just Feed You, to get a code for 15% off your first order. Because if you're going to be feeding them three times a day, plus snacks, you deserve a home that feeds your style. HomeThreads, love where you live. That's HomeThreads.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y today to get 15% off your first order. When you bring your child home for the first time, you want a baby monitor you can trust. When you choose Stork, you choose technology trusted to monitor 10 million babies in hospitals every year. Stork continuously tracks your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and temperature. Visit MassimoStork.com to learn more. Stork, a revolutionary baby monitor, is born. Stork is not a medical device. Read and understand all product labeling. Massimo data on file. 
I want to ask, because you mentioned off reporting, like your kids go to school during the week and presumably like sometimes you have to have meals with family. You are so comfortable, it sounds like, with different meal times and eating the same thing on repeat. But have you ever faced judgment either from like the preschool teachers or your in-laws or anyone else in your life about that? Like, oh, didn't they have mac and cheese yesterday? kind of comments and like how do you how do you deal with that you know we've been really lucky that we just have like the best family and and if they do have like side eye feelings they know to just like be quiet <laughs> um but like the other day we were moving and everything was chaotic and we couldn't find the water bottles and my husband took one of my daughters to school with a lunchable and a bottle of water like a like an adult bottle <laughs> yeah. of water she's two <laughs> And, I mean, um, check, that's lunch and water. Like, yeah, and like yeah. dropped her off and like looked at her teacher and was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> like, and like handed it to her. And the teacher was like, kids love Lunchables. Like, she's a heaven, she's an angel on earth, this teacher. Yeah, it just is what it is. My mom will often cook meals for them, you know, to be helpful. And then I'll come in and I'll be like, oh, they're not going to eat that. <laughs> And that makes me feel bad, but I'm like, they're not going to eat that. And she's like, well, you just, you have to expose them to it. And I'm like, sure, you can expose them, but like, we need a plan B because <laughs> yeah. they're not going to yeah, eat that. Yeah, because they're also going to be hungry, like, because they're no. not going to eat that. So what else are we making? So we've talked around a whole lot of challenges and how you've addressed them. But is there, what has been the biggest challenge for you in feeding your family? Or is there a challenge that you still haven't quite like cracked the nut? <laughs> no. Or a challenge that you do, you have your strategies, but it's just going to constantly come up for you. And so you have to constantly exercise strategies to maneuver around them. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for me is that because I have such a limited palate, I don't tend to make foods outside of that palate or even know how to make foods. Out. Like we have a running joke that like every time I make my husband a salad, I give him like a comical amount of dressing <laughs> because I don't even know how much dressing you put on a salad. Um, and I'll give him like two drops or give him like a ga- like a huge thing. <laughs> never in between. Um, never in between. And so like I, because I eat so repetitively, like with my husband, it's no big deal. I just make what I like and he eats anything. But with my kids, I'm aware that I do want them exposed to other foods. Like they probably should be eating vegetables, but like it will never naturally occur to me to be like, let's fry up some Brussels sprouts. <laughs> um, although Bru- Brussels sprouts is one of the few um, vegetables I actually do eat. Really? I think of them as a challenging. Yeah, that's like a hard, a hard yeah. pass for a lot of people. Dude, that's because lunch ladies used to boil them, right? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I think the hardest thing with our family is me figuring out ways to serve them a varied diet when I eat such a, a restricted diet. For me personally, it's that I really, every time I've wanted some help with getting more nutrients into my diet, and I've talked to someone who is like a professional, I get the same old advice that just doesn't work for me. And I've given up on on being like, this week, I'm going to make a big difference because I just don't and I won't. And I finally saw mm-hmm. a dietitian. It was like, I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to give you a list of foods I will eat. And that's what you have to work with. I'm no longer playing this game where I'm going to pretend like I'm going to start eating green beans every day. Like I just won't. Did it work? 
Yeah, she was really helpful. She um, broke it down into like small steps. And like the first step was eating three meals a day. And I was like, this is a silly place to start. And guess what? I don't eat three meals a day. So it was like weeks and weeks and weeks of that being the only thing to think about. She didn't care how I got it or, or anything. And so I think that like I've just decided that's net. It's just like never going to be the way it's quote unquote supposed to. And I've decided I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't have like any medical conditions that present life or death issues around like the way that I eat. I've got probably some things that could be better if I ate a little bit different. But like, I just, I'm really okay not being like the ideal picture of health. Like, I want to stick around for my family. I'm, I'm going to do that. But like, I don't know, man. I just don't care. And I'm like done pretending that that's some sort of moral issue. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you don't know that you're not the picture of health. You know what I mean? It sounds like your health is fine. You know, eating more vegetables doesn't mean I know lots of people who eat lots of vegetables, primarily vegetarian, who are definitely not the picture of health. You know, like severing that connection in our brains between the way we eat necessarily being connected to our good health. Yeah. I also want to say we have had guests and we have friends. We've had listener questions where people have struggled with the opposite. They're the parent who wants to eat very diet and their kids will only eat a handful of things, whether it's because they have, they're like on the autism spectrum in any capacity or have mental health, or they're just picky little kids in a season. And I think that even though you're so laissez-faire, but you're like, I don't care. And it's fine. Like that is super meaningful to those parents who have kids who have a limited palate, who only want to eat a few things. Like you're full, fully grown adult. Uh, yeah, like I'm fine. Best-selling author, a therapist. You have like a fully functioning family, and you still there's like a dozen things that you like to eat, and you're more than okay because of it. Yeah, like if we never solve this problem, it's gonna be fine. It's totally yes. gonna be fine. What are I'm gonna consider that a triumph or a win? But like, what are some other things? Because we love to talk about food joy, and even in the places where we struggle, there can be joy and there can be triumph. So like. What are some of the things that you love about how you feed your family or that have been rewarding in some capacity? So I used to feel this pressure to like cook a meal every night, cook dinner every night. And and I felt like it needed to be, you know, the one main meat, two sides, you know, yada, yada, yada. And um, I kind of like burnt myself out doing it. And I saw this post one time where this woman was like, you guys don't understand that like we cook for you. We cook for you. If it was up to us, we would have a glass of wine and a handful of crackers (laughs) and cheese for dinner. So I stopped like doing that. Yeah. I realized that my husband wasn't expecting that from me and my kids weren't expecting that from me. I was just making that up. And it's true. Like when I was living by myself, like, that's not how I was feeding myself. Mm-hmm. And when my husband was living by himself, by himself, like, that's not how he was feeding himself. So, like, why did we all of a sudden feel like when we got married, we had to, like, completely change the way we were feeding ourselves? Like, it was just weird. And I'm someone who likes to cook. And I got to the point where I hated cooking. Mm. So my my big triumph was, like, I let myself off the hook. Some nights I tell people that they, like, I, I just, I'm like, you know what? Tonight's the night we all fend for ourselves. 
Um, I mean, I, not my little kids, right? But some nights I make something by itself. Like I made a pork loin the other day with this like really good sesame teriyaki glaze. Yum. And that's it. There were no sides. There was no nothing. It's a. It was just like a big piece of meat. And it was like, this is what I made because this is how I would feed myself. Like, this sounds good. And, you know, if my husband was like, ooh, let's do this with it. Like, great. But like, I finally realized like he doesn't care either. He is fine to yeah. eat a piece of pork and go to bed. <laughs> and yeah. so I started being a lot more like utilitarian about feeding us dinner and then what happened was all of a sudden, like the joy of cooking came back to me. Mm. And I realized like, I just, I get us fed with food that tastes good and, and, you know, has nutrients. That's fine. And then like on Saturdays when my husband is home and our kids are occupied, I cook something that is, you know, that takes a few hours that does require chopping vegetables that de- like I went back to cooking being like a treat for myself. Yes. That yeah. I do maybe once a week and that that's OK. Like it's OK. I started getting bento boxes because when I go to feed my kids, if I'm just staring at a plate, I have that expectation of like, how do I make a cohesive meal? But if I'm looking at a bento box, all of the sudden I'm like okay, what can I put in this slot? This slot lives in its own universe. I'll put this in there. What can I put in this slot? Probably something dairy. What kind of dairy things do I have? How about this slot? Probably a fruit. I have these fruit. And I'm not worried about whether strawberries go with veggie sticks and whether strawberries and veggie sticks go with peanut butter sandwiches. Like I'm not thinking about that. Yeah. So I think that that's my big win and my big triumph was like genius utilitarian approach to feeding i also on sundays when i was like done being snack yes um, (laughs) and i was like i just want to go do something while you ask me for snacks so on sundays i would get a huge tray and i would make like the biggest snack charcuterie board you've ever (laughs) seen and i would put it on the table and i'd be like Nobody talk to me about food for the next six hours. Yeah. Um, this is, is here. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. And they would just eat off of it all day and I would get left alone. And so there's just like all sorts of little weird hacks that we do that like once I allowed myself to break the rules and like get away from the way I thought it looked, like things just work better in our house now. Yeah. I feel like parents, there's this insatiable insatiable desire for more recipes, more tips, more. I mean, you know, listen, it keeps Megan and I in business, although we are working hard to try to shift the conversation and empower people instead of being a source of, you know, the holy grail of how to feed your picky kid, which is what parents come to us looking for. What I love about so much of what you're saying, yes, they're tidbits. Like someone can take the bento box idea and fuck it from this episode and it's genius. But what I hope it does, I hope it unlocks people to think about their own hacks. Like we know how our brains work or we have the capacity to reflect on that and to think about what's the hack that would work for me so much of the time, not always, but so much of a time, I think the block is not giving ourselves permission to just do what works for us instead of what we've been told is the way it's supposed to be. And that like what works for you may not work for me, may not work for Megan. And that's okay. That doesn't mean I have to spend hours and hours on social media looking for the person who matches Stacy 
Although I'll probably do that anyway, just for fun. (laughs) (laughs) But like that, I like I have the answers in me about what works for me and what works for my family. Just have to be cool with letting the rest of the BS go and like let myself lean into that. Yeah, I think the other thing is like the hacks that I come up with are all about my behavior. Mm -hmm. They're not about controlling what my kids are eating. I think that's when it gets frustrating. It's like, how do I get them to eat more vegetables? Mm. How do I get them to not want sweets all the time? How do I get them to stop fighting about this? And it's like, I literally have just given up on that. Like, I don't do any power struggles about food at all. Every single hack is about what makes it easier for me, what gives the kind of opportunities to my kids I want. So like one hack I did recently was my kids would go into the pantry and then they see everything we have and then they would like want something that I'd be like, ah, that's not really what I want to give you right now. And then we'd fight about it. So instead I started doing, I have like a basket tower and I put out snacks every day. And I say like, these are free gray snacks. You can have them anytime, as many as you want. Here they are. And like the bottom basket are chips. And then the middle one is fruit. And then the top one is applesauce. And I found that they were eating a lot of the fruit and they were eating a lot of the applesauce and they were eating a lot. And I was like, Hey, this is great. But even if they had never touched the fruit, like that still would have worked. Like I wasn't Mm -hmm, trying to control what they were eating. I was trying to control what their options were because their options are in my like realm of control. Yes. Um, And so that's always been helpful of like, I'm only ever trying to figure out how can I make it easier to do the things that are within my control? Like what I serve them, what I pick, what I expose them to, what I offer, what I buy, what I prepare, how I prepare it. I've never really tried to find hacks for like, how can I make them eat differently? Um, Because that just sounds miserable. Yeah, it is. It does. I want to ask like in a follow-up to that, what are other things in your kitchen that you feel like are organ, like whether it's tools or organization, you mentioned in the book, paper plates are sometimes a tool or often a tool for feeding yourself when you're struggling. So what are some of the things like organizational wise? Even better than paper plates, I discovered that my local Sam's Club sells food service boats. You know, when you get like a basket of fries, there's like this plastic, 750 of them (laughs) in one box for like $20. And so we've been eating off of the same one for a year. And it's like perfect for just like pouring some chips in or just giving them those. And they actually have less like paper in them than a full paper plate. So those are amazing. I do quite a bit of like decanting things, but not because I'm trying to be Martha Stewart, but because like it helps me to physically see our food. Um, so I know what we have, what we don't have, what we need to yeah. buy. It, it, it's it's overwhelming and difficult for me when everything is in an opaque box. I also just bought myself one of those like onion choppers. Yeah. I'm like, this is amazing. Um, I have these things called super cubes. Um, we love super cubes. Yeah. They're amazing. They're amazing. I have a um, vacuum sealer because I thought I was going to get into canning and I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm never going to do this. <laughs> but I can get a vacuum sealer where you just turn it up and it like sucks it out and you don't get frostbite. And so one of the things that I've recently realized is like I do a lot of recipes that have stock, like chicken stock, beef stock, but like you never need the whole carton. And then I would stay and it would go bad and then I would need some and I'd have to buy a whole thing. And I realized like I can pour them into my super cubes, freeze them, and then vacuum seal them so that I have one cup portions of stock 
in my yeah. freezer at all times. Freezer food is like really what I'm getting into these days because it's hard for me. Like the amount of times I go out and buy like fresh chicken breast or fresh vegetables because I have every intention in the world of making a meal and then life happens. And then three days later, it's all bad. Like I have thrown away so much food. So I try as much as possible to rely on shelf stable foods and frozen foods so that if I decide, wait a second, I suddenly have an opening, I wanna make this recipe, everything's there. And I'm not going, oh, I got this piece of meat that I've gotta figure out something to do with. Like I started ordering from Butcher Block that just sends me like a box of frozen meat and I just eat from that. I can stick frozen meats directly into my Instant Pot and like have it cooked. We grill frozen steaks. We like them better that way. Um, I can typically remember to throw something in the, the day before and be like, I'm gonna do something with that loin tomorrow. I do a lot of frozen vegetables. Um, like I said, I try to start freezing my stock. Um, one time I cooked like a big batch on a Saturday of refried beans mm -hmm. and did them in my super cubes. So like last night I made enchiladas. And the only thing I had to make sure that I bought that I had was tortillas mm -hmm. because I had frozen refried beans in one cup portions. I had frozen stock in one cup portions. I had cans of enchilada sauce and I had frozen chicken that I just threw into the instant pot and in 30 minutes had fresh shredded chicken. I love to be able to make a meal from completely frozen or shelf stable foods so that I don't have to put so much decision making and executive functioning into how many fresh ingredients do I need to get? And how many this week will we eat? And if something kind of goes wrong, will I waste all this food? I would love to get to a place where I could write a whole cookbook on like how to never have to have fresh food in your life. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> do you have a system for doing some of this prep work? Because no. I, are you just Chaos. able to be consistent? <laughs> are you able to be consistent in doing prep no. work? Okay. No. That's why, that's why like I try so much to rely on frozen because I can find a Saturday where like I feel like making this food and I can just like double the refried beans and then freeze it, you know, and I, I'm projecty. Like I kind of get into that. And so I just allow myself to do that when it's fun to do. And um, I don't, I no longer pretend like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and be the kind of person that has some sort of like weekly routine of prepping food. That'll never yeah. be me. Yes. Everything is ad hoc. And because I can vacuum seal it and freeze it, you know, I can use it in six months. The vacuum yeah. sealer is genius because it is true that frostbite is like the thing. I'll freeze something. And then, you know, three months later, I'll be like, ah, oh, it's ruined. Do you have any kitchen organization systems that work for you or any things that are really key? Like even as simple as like keeping the pots, you know, in a certain space because they're easy to grab that you think are really yeah. key for you? Yeah, so I actually recently got rid of all my pots and pans and bought these pots that have a removable, a, a reattachable removable handle. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have a frying pan, a small frying pan and a pot and they all stack awesome. because there's no handle and there's one handle. Um, and then on my, I have an everything pan, a cast iron pan and a Le Creuset pot that stay on my range at all times. I don't put them away. That's really helpful. In my refrigerator, I put all of our condiments in the produce drawers because if I want a condiment, I know I want it and I'll go looking for it. Mm -hmm. I try to keep like produce in the door because if I see it, I'll eat it. So smart. I try to make everything front row. Like I don't put anything behind anything. Yeah. So th that's really helpful to do it that way. I then mentioned the snack baskets. 
Yes. And then I also, um, I ha- I don't, I haven't gotten it yet, but I have my eye on this freezer. I've never been a second freezer person. I am a second freezer person and we currently need a new one. So I'm like, yes, tell me okay, about this listen, freezer you have. There is a Hamilton Beach freezer. It's expensive, right? It's probably like 800 bucks. Okay. But listen, it's all drawers. Mm. It's a stand-up freezer and it's drawers, not shelves, drawers from top to bottom. There's like seven or eight drawers. And like, that's always my thing with the freezer is like nothing stacks very well and everything's falling out and you don't know what's behind anything. And I cannot get a, you know, the, the chest freezer because everything underneath what I can't see on the top layer will be dead to me. Yeah. But like, I really am lusting after this upright freezer with drawers because I can label a drawer, right? Like I can keep all my meat in this drawer and all my veggies in this drawer and all my soups in this drawer. I've seen it. I've definitely sent it to my husband. I feel like Costco carries it. So it might be a little bit cheaper there for anyone else who's looking. I feel like all these tips are very helpful to other home cooks, but I have a selfish question and you've sort of like alluded to it, to it also, but like Stacey and I, we both have been in food media for a really long time. We both write recipes for our dinner, just feed you listeners community, but also for like other outlets. And besides the cue of like, Hey, this doesn't have to be cooked chicken. You could swap in the shredded, you know, rotisserie chicken or like, Hey, you can use this much chopped onion instead of one whole onion because you're like taking those shortcuts. Are there other things that you feel like, and you mentioned like you read parenting blogs and stuff. So like, what is the thing that's missing in food media for folks who are neurodivergent? So I actually wrote a cookbook. I don't know if y'all know this. It's not like anything fancy. It's just a digital cookbook that people can download. And there's a few things I did in there that I think were really helpful. One was I spent a couple of pages explaining what things meant because people don't know what brown meat means sometimes and they're too embarrassed to ask. They don't know what it means to boil something or to simmer something. And so I had some definitions. I had pictures of what pans were. I also had, um, like I mentioned, various swaps. So like I would say like this requires chicken and I would put, you can either cook chicken and shred it. You can get cooked pre-shredded chicken. You can substitute canned chicken. So I gave like various layers of ease if somebody needed to do that. I also tried to make most of the recipes use the fewest amount of pots and dishes possible because it's really overwhelming when you have lots of stuff to clean. I know that some people love like crock pot meals because they like to set it and forget it. For some of us, we're not thinking that far ahead. Mm. So for me, it's something that I can cook in under 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'd rather use an instant pot. I would rather use something that I can do really quickly because I'm not going to have the forethought to think about what we're going to eat in eight hours. Yeah. Always thinking about what we are going to eat 10 minutes before we need to eat. I also gave a list of, of all the recipes, the shelf stable things that you can go buy in bulk. And then so all you have to do weekly is go buy fresh things. And then I'll give you the number one tip for me. And this is so, I would give anything for somebody to write recipes this way because of the way that my ADHD works, my learning disabilities work, all of these things. It is really, really hard for me that the amounts 
are of ingredients are listed separately than the steps for making the food. So when it says like add the milk to the butter and I have to go reference a completely different list to see how much butter I'm supposed to do and then come back to the list to see exactly what, like that is really hard for me. It's overwhelming. It takes a lot of executive functioning to do that back and forth and back and forth. And I just want someone to say, add a half a cup of milk to three tablespoons of butter. Why does no one do it that way? It's not that hard. Like I understand that you also have the list of the ingredients because people like to like pre-set. They like to just get the ingredients out. But like, why do I have to look at two lists? Just tell me what it is. I have a really hard time with directions and I have to concentrate really hard on them, especially if it's a recipe where it's like, I have to be watching two things at once. And I'm rushing because it's like, wow, that boils for the next five yeah. seconds. Chop your onion. I'm like, ah! like <laughs> um, because I also have like children talking and all these sort of things. Yes. And it's like, I just want someone to tell me the amounts in the steps. First of all, shameless plug. I did not realize I was doing it, but my first cookbook, Make It Easy, does a lot of these things because what nice. I was thinking about was how could I take, you know, I studied cognitive development in graduate school. And I remember something that has really stuck with me is that experts can be really terrible teachers because part of what makes you an expert is that you automate a bunch of things that are small or you condense things. So like, you know, Chopping an onion is a single step to me that goes really quickly, but actually cutting an onion has multiple steps. It's you've got to get the onion, then you've cut it in half, then you've got to peel the oven, then you got to remember to put it cut side down, etc. So for me- Cut side down? No one's told me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that it doesn't wibble wobble everywhere and you don't hurt yourself, right? So oh. these are the things that as an expert, you don't even- think to mention. And I remember feeling like I really want to challenge myself to write a cookbook that helps people who are just starting out cooking so that they can like really get it and elevate it. And then also there was a whole bunch of like uh, store-bought shortcuts. So, you know, I would say you could do this or you could get store-bought. And these are my favorite store-bought shortcuts. And every recipe came with a, what you can pair it with. Because I remember mm -hmm. feeling like when you're overwhelmed, when you have kids, you're not really a great cook or you just don't care to have imagination with cooking for whatever reason that I don't care what it is. Like, that's not where you put your energy. You're like, great. I'm going to make the chicken salt and boca. Well, what, what the heck else am I going to make for you? You've decided you're not going to make anything else. Great. If someone else wants something, here are four other recipes in this cookbook. That go or better well yet, here's a list of things that aren't recipes. Like, yes, Uncle Ben's 90 second rice. Yes, I love that. Yes, totally. But I wanted to know, okay, I didn't put the amounts in the steps, but everything you're saying makes perfect sense. And I feel like I'm going to have a hard time ever writing a recipe without putting it. How do you feel about a recipe that has just a list of ingredients without the amounts, but then the amounts is mentioned in the directions? Well, that's not helpful for shopping because if I need to get chicken, how much chicken? Like, I right. understand why okay. they're there. I think of it this way. Like, have you ever had to put together a piece of furniture that you've never put together before? Yes. The amount of concentration that you have to use to, like, look at the directions, read the directions, actually, like, 
think really hard about the directions and you're looking at the diagram where it's like, okay, I want to make sure I'm on the right side uh-huh. of board A. And it like, it's a lot of thinking. I think for people that cook a lot, they don't experience recipes that way. They're like, oh yeah, flambe the whatever. Okay, do this, chop, <laughs> chop this, do whatever. And everything's really automatic. But for a lot of us, every time we do a recipe, even if we've done it before, it's like putting together Ikea furniture. It mm-hmm. takes that much concentration, that much executive functioning, that much like stress. And it's not even like bad kind of stress, but just like, and like I've put off furniture before because like I don't have the mental fortitude to like sit down and really dial into the instructions. You know, whenever you get a meal kit, there's certain meal kits that I think do a really good job of like, they don't tell you what you need to do and assume that you know how to to like manage all of that. They'll literally say, step one, chop the onions. Step two, preheat the whatever. Step three, put some butter in a dish, set aside. So you can honestly turn your brain off and literally do exactly what you're told. The only thing I wish they would do different is they write it in paragraph style. And I wish it was like bullet point all the way down because I have to concentrate really hard to understand where one step is starting and when the next one is is stopping and starting. This is all incredible feedback. We promised to only take 30 minutes of your time and now we're here at an hour. So we just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So happy to have you on Didn't I Just Feed You today. So happy. Thank you so much, Casey. Megan, that conversation has me basically rethinking my entire approach to my professional life in a good way. Like it has me inspired. Okay. I love that you said a professional life because I'm like, Oh, I could change a lot of how our kitchen's organized for my neurodiverse husband who I give a hard time because he can't find anything. And now, now I know why. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. So let me ask though, is Brian, does Brian have a diagnosis? He has had an ADHD diagnosis since he was eight, which is like very different from both Mike's experience and Casey's experience as like being adult. So he just has a lot of like, coping strategies that are have been lifelong and are they're not going to change yeah. yeah i think that it made a really mike being diagnosed in midlife when we were together really made it so that we didn't take anything for granted and there were no like we knew we had to stop pause reflect and make some new habits and find some new ways of relating to each other around household tasks and honestly Things that were causing a lot of strife in our relationship for a lot of years, Mm -hmm. just like how to maneuver around the day to day with kids, with meals, with quote unquote, helping me, you know, around house care. So, you know, I don't know that if he'd come into the relationship because we met when we were so young with an ADHD diagnosis, I don't know, there is an intentionality around it that I think was really helpful. And we already had identified all the places where we were really struggling in our interactions with each other around home and childcare. Yeah. So I will say, I think the first half of our marriage, I just didn't, even though we talked about it, it would come up in conversations. I never thought about it as being impactful to how we 
do life. And it's just been really interesting, like in the last five, six years to embrace that and be like, oh, okay. yes, I don't have to feel like a nag when I remind Brian about something repeatedly. Like he genuinely doesn't remember or like yes. can't keep track of that thing. And it's not because he doesn't care. It's literally just how his brain is wired. Totally. Yeah. So I love this idea of like letting go, having grace with yourself, but also like with the other people in your life and your expectations for them. It's just also really helpful for the other people. It's no, it's important for all of us to also know how we operate and what we need, whether you are a person struggling in this moment or you're the partner to or parent to or caregiver to somebody struggling that it's not just people with diagnoses saying like putting the responsibility on them. This is how I work. It's also knowing how you work and what triggers you so that, you know, if what you need is a really clean home, ask me how I know this, (laughs) but your partner has ADHD and like, just doesn't see the things instead of being angry that you don't see the things being like, is this a piece that I can let go of? And if it's not, what other systems can I put in place? Yeah. Or what can I offload that really can work for Mike so that I can be putting my energy into sweeping my floors every night? I don't know. You know, it's a silly example, not even a real one, but you know, it's so much of what Casey said in terms of our personal lives really, I think, is applicable to parenthood in general, especially when it comes to dealing with our kids who don't yet know themselves. Like, we have to do a lot of knowing ourselves, really clear expectations, really look at our kids with clear eyes and see what they're capable of in any given moment, both developmentally and also because of who they are and their personalities, and then kind of make it work forgiving yourself if the way that you make it work isn't the way it's supposed to work. Yes. Also, Casey's like sharing about the the like cognitive energy that it takes for her to cook gave me like a new lens to look at some other house chores too, not just for Brian, but also for the kids. Like when you ask your kiddo to like pick up their room or pick up their thing and they say that they like can't do it right now, maybe they're honestly recognizing that they don't have that like mental energy to do the sorting and do the steps that it takes to get their room picked up. And it's also a reminder that just because that seems like inherently known to me as a homekeeper doesn't mean that they understand how to do it. So it's like the thing of not just cooking, but other care needs to be taught as from not the expert lens, but from the beginner lens. Totally. And professionally, did, did was there anything? I mean, I was really more struck by the professional side of things, like really hearing her talk about the cognitive load of following a recipe and really thinking about it down to how something is printed was so like, yes, I totally get it. I just yeah. never thought that way. So I followed what we are literally taught as professional, if you've worked for a magazine, if you've published a book, you get guidelines. There's literally the recipe writing handbook that is the Bible in our industry. And for many, many years, it was like, this is the proper way to write a recipe. Yeah. I think it, I, I want to have a conversation 
off mic about changing how we do didn't I just yes. feed you recipes because totally. that's the place where we have the most control and we also know that we have like a very diverse listeners community and people who are using those recipes and I think there's a lot that we could do easily to make them more accessible yes I'm so excited about that piece of it yes okay speaking of our wonderful listeners community we want to hear from you we want to know what other How We Feed episodes you want and need. So let's take it there. Join us there. You can go to dinijustfeedyou.com backslash community. There you'll find the free section that's literally just giving us your email. And then you'll be in the message board where we share our what we're cooking and eating now recipes where we talk about follow-ups to these episodes and we ask all these questions and get brilliant answers. But also at that community page, you'll see our different membership options. You can also follow us on Instagram or where we are at Didn't I Just Feed You. We may also be on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) TikTok Irregularly. Yeah, a lot of TikTok talk. A huge thank you to our producer, Samantha Gatsik. I'm Megan. And I'm Stacy. Stay sane and well fed until next week. Or just fed. Just stay fed. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you're listening. And don't forget to rate and review. When everyone's on the same page, Getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.